Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast, back for 2017 with a brand new attitude. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's exactly the same. We're still assholes. Roger's here. Hello. Lucy's here. What's up? I'm here. I'm Dave. Lucy, what have you been reading? I have been focusing on the Middle East. Because that's what I asked for for Christmas, because the day when my mum said, what do you want for Christmas, I panicked and went on Amazon and looked at comics, and it turned out all the ones that looked interesting were about the Middle East. And then it got to Christmas Day, and I was like, oh yeah, I did ask for a lot of comics about the Middle East, so that's where I'm at. Mm. Tell us about them. So I read um, volumes one and two of The Arab of the Future by Riyadh Fatouf. Well, that's supposed Um, to be good. It is. Oh my God, it's good. It's very good. Um, It's the story of his... Childhood growing up as a kind of mixed culture kid. His mother is from Brittany and his dad is Syrian. And they, his dad gets a job in Libya for a short time and then they go back to France for a bit. This is all sort of when he's kind of under five in the first one. And then by the second one, he's back in Syria, sort of more or less for good, it seems, and sort of starting to go to school. He's kind of five or six years old. And um, it's very, very funny. Very yeah. funny. Yeah, lots of good jokes. Um... Like, he's very, he's very good at drawing from a young age, and he just sort of draws people off the TV, and he draws Pompidou. Um, he was the man in charge of France at that point, mm-hmm. being the early 80s. And everyone's like, my God, you drew Pompidou. And he's like, yes, I did, sort of not really knowing who that was, just like a face he'd seen on the telly and watching all the adults go bananas over it. At some point, his mother describes a French singer as God, so then whenever anybody mentions God, he gets an image of this guy in his mind singing in French, <laughs> which is, you know, not really within either the um, Islamic or Christian traditions, but no. that's fine. Most French singers I know are very far removed from any Judeo-Christian notions of God. Yes, indeed. Um, it's also, so, just the sort of especially when he's back in Syria for a long period, just this kind of small, weird cultural details as opposed to the kind of big, important ones are the bits that are very enjoyable. So the other children, for some reason, wear kind of moulded plastic shoes. Like, they've got bits that look like laces on them, but it's just one solid plastic shoe made to look like a sneaker because that's what children's shoes are in Syria at that point, for some reason. Um... And just weird cultural things that you might not ever really realise otherwise, like quite a few of the children who he goes to school with have facial scarring, and it turns out that it's just really common at that point to leave hot cups of tea on the floor and babies to just knock them all over themselves and end up basically scarred for life. Wow. Yeah. Troubling. Yeah. But it's something you never really learn about. It feels like an easy fix, doesn't it? Yeah, just fucking put it on a table or something. It's just tables. I mean, then they might just have table scars, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, so I suppose the most interesting thing is the kind of the sort of mixed culture kid stuff that you're getting. He's getting sort of, you know, his mum's obviously really frustrated by her sort of position as a kind of an academic's wife in Syria where she has to, like, cook on a camping stove and she's sort of treated, she's treated better than the local women because she's a Western woman, like, she's not expected to cover her hair and she gets to eat first with the men when she's a guest and stuff. But she finds it horrifying that, like, her husband's sisters and stuff are waiting for them to finish to get their leftovers kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, it was a very interesting um, sort of parallel on, I guess, toxic masculinity in both French and Arab culture. So you've got sort of, you know, some of the comments his dad makes, some of the comments his dad's friends make. But then when they go back to France, his granddad just turns out to be a total perv. Like, he's just... He, the kid is four years old, and he's like, well, look, girls, 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 you want to grope them, don't be gay, kind of thing. 
It's yeah. like, well... <laughs> That's pretty grim. Yeah, no. But it's, it's nice that bigotry is everywhere and not just restricted to people we don't understand. One thing that the, the title made me think of was um, um, in the last week or so uh, in the game Overwatch, a new map went live set in like Iraq in mm. the future when the whole thing set, about 80 years from now. And people genuinely shat the bed at the idea that future Iraq might be anything other than a blasted wasteland. Which it's is, our wanky war playground. You're not allowed to have a nice one in the future. Well, exactly. The, the sort of the fundamental assumptions that you're coming from are that it's an inherently savage place and it is for Western culture to dominate. Mm. Mm. You have to come from that to get to, to to conceivably get to the point that they're coming from. And the guy in particular who was ranting fuck. at Blizzard, being like, "I was willing to maybe go along with you with one of the characters being gay," but this is absolutely fucking insane. It's beyond the pale. The yes. idea that the idea that other people are people and have societies might Oof. get to have a nice time in the future. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's this is very Arab of the future is very interesting on that sort of. Yes, it's strange, and yes, it's different, but not really in the ways that we in a kind of Western cultural homogeneity have been told to believe and understand um, and it's I guess he doesn't go into it a lot because he's a sort of four or five year old kid in most of this and it's an ongoing series the third one's coming out in September in English translation so there'll be more in the future which I'm looking forward to but it certainly made me think a lot about identity what does it mean to be there what does it mean to be there as a half French kid, what does it mean to then be that half Arabic kid in France, all of that sort of stuff, which he's not really explicitly dealing with, but the implicit stuff is obviously there. It's really good. I would recommend it, definitely. Stylistically? Beautiful. The, the, he was obviously very good at drawing as a child and then carried <laughs> on being very good at drawing. <laughs> uh, what was the other thing you read? Uh, How Do You Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, which is Sarah Glidden, who we talked about with Rolling Blackouts Blackouts, last year. Yeah, This was her sort of previous work to that, which is um, in her mid-twenties, as a Jewish-American woman, she went on a birthright tour of Israel from a position of being quite anti-Israel. So it was her experiences there, you know, the extent to which it opened her eyes or didn't change her mind or didn't is sort of that story and process sort of a I'm, I'm picturing elements of Gidalil's Jerusalem but maybe a bit less entitled yes it's like that but better and with mm. sort of more I guess more inherent cultural understanding because she is coming from a background of one of the factions but mm. then at the same time you know she's very she's very very worried that the tour is just going to be pro-Israel yeah. brainwashing that it's not going to be an even-handed handling mm. of the history of the conflict the whole political situation um, I mean, she specifically picked one that was kind of history and politics focused rather than mm-hmm. a more general one because she thought she'd be more likely to get that kind of stuff. And then we'll sort of... There was plenty of acknowledgement, but maybe not as much as she wanted. And yeah, no, it's good. It's really good. Excellent. As beautifully watercoloured, as always. Oh, one of those. Yeah, there's a bit where she's on the bus and the bus is all misted up and she draws a sort of rain cloud in the mist on the bus and then does it from outside and just just mm. just being able to do that with watercolours is amazing that sounds pretty cool yeah no it's really nice to look at and was that her sort of first thing it was her first full length thing mm. sort of she was doing mini comics before that and this was her kind of big breakout book type mm. thing and then Rolling Blackouts followed 
on sort of similar but not identical territory. Hmm. That sounds well worth picking up. Yeah, good Christmas gifts. Thank you, Mum. You've been quite highbrow. Roger, have you? <laughs> oh, God, no. Uh, no, actually, it's a mix. It's a mix. So, um... I've read a, I've read a few things. Um, some of it's sort of off the Christmas pile. There's a wonderful sort of um, highbrow, lowbrow trade-off thing, which is I finally, and thank you, Mr. Cornbury, for the gift, um, got to Black Panther, A Nation Under Our Feet uh, by Tanhesi Coates. Um, for anyone that sort of doesn't follow angry, angry left-wing journalism, um, Tanhesi Coates is a, is a political writer Basically, the journalist often for the Atlantic. I Cultural think. commentator, Cultural yeah, commentator. Yeah, Atlantic. Writes very well on um, American racial politics. That's a significant focus for him. And his recent book, which I've not read, uh, Between the World and Me, um, is effectively about American race relations, particularly with an angle on um, violence, essentially, and the way. Space is constructed as white by default, and therefore blankness is an intrusion. Is kind of one of the things that he is talked about quite heavily there. He's um so he's a, he's a an incredibly fluent, a, a beautiful writer. His nonfiction is, del- you know, his articles are delightful. Um, and this was announced with a fair bit of fanfare last year that he was picking up Black Panther. It's not sort of um, this is partly Marvel sort of stoking it up a bit sales and what have you off the back of appearance in the movies and I think there's a solo movie coming there is yes Yeah, um, I lose track of what order things are being commissioned in the MCU they're going to make one of all of them don't worry yeah. but this is this is really interesting so it's not a franchise I, I knew very well um, Black Panther as a comic appears in the mid 60s I think um, I think a little later and Oh no! Actually, it was the mid sixties because the name for the con- the character predated the social movement by not a lot. By not a yeah. lot, but some. Um, and Black Panther, the superhero, is it's a really interesting. Um, it's a superhero with a sort of a notional identity, but the identity is completely known. So it is he is it is the ceremonial role of the king of Wakanda. Yeah, sort of tribal warrior thing. Which is a fictional African country in the Marvel Universe, which... Is extraordinarily yeah. technologised, but yeah. also quite faithful to its sort of historical ritualism and kind of cultural roots. Yeah. Um, but I thought it, I, it is one of the things that I really love about the early Marvel Universe, that in writing that, they just basically took this massive fuck you of dropping in this huge country full of black people who were just infinitely more advanced yeah. than all of the other characters. A nice time in Iraq and 70 years in the desert. <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm sure the letters pages were fun. It's really interesting. It's not a history or continuity I knew all about. Um, and I also bounce right off the art. It's um, Brian Stoffries? Stoffries? Stoffries, I think. Stoffries. Um... Lots of people had a lot of good things to say about it, and I absolutely understand why. It's really, really good. I just didn't like it. It's a really, really good execution of what I think of as quite generic superhero art. Mm-hmm. Um, completely, some of it, there are some panels that are absolutely fantastic, some bits where it kind of mixes up a bit. I thought, so I thought the, um, 
I didn't like the art style so much, but I did like the design. Yes. Like, the way that they've done, sort of, particularly the new characters, like the uh, the sort of... There's, there's two female vigilante characters who are sort of former bodyguards... Yeah, and and their designs for their costumes are just fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot to like in it, and it's it's extremely well executed, but it didn't sort of pull me in. And it this this is perverse. This is not really a fault of the book, but it sort of compounded my feeling of slight alienation of this is it isn't, but the slight feeling of this is generic comics because I was wading into the middle of a continuity I didn't understand in an art style that felt. So I kind of I had a hard time thinking into it, but it's well worth the effort. So. Black Panther hasn't much previously interrogated the idea that this superhero, kind of, he's sort of a bit Batman, I guess. Sort of a bit gadgety, a bit superpowered. I don't know. Yeah. Um, is also the king of a large, modern, incredibly, incredibly modern nation, and what that means politically. So it's, it's the story of, in, in sort of recent Marvel stuff, a bunch of stuff has happened in Wakanda and it's pretty fucked. And off the back of that, um, there's massive civil unrest and T'Challa is trying to deal with this despite sort of, kind of a bit not wanting to be king or not really understanding what it means. Um, and the book is, is a really intricate, it, it's only one volume and there's loads more to come, negotiation of types of power and types of governance and traditions of power. So there's T'Challa's type of sort of semi-technocratic rule. There's his father's type of more dynastic eye on our history rule. There's the stuff that the rebel faction have, which is a little bit more rooted in sort of tradition and the magic of the land, and various spectrums in between. So the two characters you talked about, the rogue Doro Milaje um, captains, the royal protectorate or bodyguards or whatever, um, found a society based on something a bit a sort of a more immediate vigilante-esque civilian justice. And it keeps having these little lines where people, in particular T'Challa, encounter competing power systems and it's just not that simple. So he, he raids a compound where some people are being what looks like sort of held captive. And after all the violence is done, there are some women and children about the place and he says, you know, don't worry, the kingdom will take care of you, we will provide for you. And one of them just turns to him and says, they were providing for us. And whether or not they were in a... Nothing is allowed to be completely simple. Everything is really fucking messy. Um, relentlessly so, and it makes it quite interesting at the same time as being this big, garish superhero thing. It makes it quite hard to get a handle on where they're going because there's sort of particular... There's a sort of fairly crucial um, element to the sort of populist uprising that isn't really introduced until the third issue of mm. the arc. Um, you meet sort of outcroppings of it, but you don't actually know what's behind it until that third issue. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on in the background. There's a bit of continuity wank, but it's not particularly intrusive. I love the I love the ambiguity of the title as well, A Nation Under Our Feet. When it was first announced, I did sort of wonder how is someone who is sort of rooted in democratic in every sense politics going to approach a character who is presented as both fundamentally good, if kind of an asshole, uh, and also and king. Absolute monarch. Yes. And it turns out he engages with it by absolutely fucking engaging with it and the book is about it. Yes. Um, it's... I find myself in the weird position of unequivocally recommending it whilst not really having enjoyed it that much. It's hard. It's quite hard going. It's not... I So I haven't, I haven't read as far as you. I'm reading it on Marvel Unlimited mm. which is a little bit behind. Um... But it's 
better than it is enjoyable, at least on first read. My my second favourite thing about it is that um, for the next however long, well, basically as long as the fucking Guardian is still letting assholes write about comics, uh, for however long we're, we're going to be putting up with Biff, Bam, Kapow, Comics After Cans, um, there'll actually be a nice canonical mainstream, like it doesn't even have to be watched anymore, actual mainstream big two superhero story that's big and gaudy that you can point to and say this is about something else. And yes, I know plenty of other ones are, but... This doesn't need as much reading through to get to that. And also the people that are impressed by... The kind of people we're talking to here will only listen because Dinesha Coates has won awards for non-fiction. Mm-hmm. It's a nice extra to have. He's, he's doing a service to comic to the future of comics on that one. Um, <laughs> it's a great book. Um, also, more quickly, um, Marion Turnham, which is a webcomic by uh, Dishing Helmer, um, which is... Oh my God, it's bleak. It's beautifully done. Um, colonization of Mars, stuff goes horribly wrong. It opens with a middle-aged scientist unsuccessfully trying to commit suicide and kind of doesn't really get a lot more sensible from there. Um, not sensible is the wrong word. It gets really weird. It's this is this is this is this is a book with just so many content notes. It opens with a suicide attempt. The guys had a bunch of child abuse in his past, horrible things happen to him as the book goes on. Um, it still somehow manages to retain, it's not misery porn, it retains a kind of lightness of touch. Um, especially as he meets a big weird alien dude who sort of doesn't really, uh, I mean that's already spoilery. Would you recommend it? Yes. Okay. Um, it's kind of hard going, but it and the it takes a little while to warm up, but it's, it's the story of this, this kind of fucked up guy discovering weird sci-fi shit on Mars whilst also working through his personal problems. Um, and it's a lot better than that sounds. Uh, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it dabbles in, in reasonably hard sci-fi as well, but um, but mostly it's, it's sort of the interpersonal stuff and ways of trying to interact with people. It's got a lot to say in sort of the, one of the middle sections, basically, about loneliness and connection. And it's got some quite nice sci-fi concepts. I was put onto this by the Dragon Horde guys. Did a Ooh. comics oh, advert calendar. One of those? Yes, that was good. Um, which is a that. really nice discovery mechanism. There, um, there's there's nothing on there that I wouldn't at least say look at, mm. um, and some of it's genuinely great. Uh, yeah, the visual style is quite interesting. Uh, Mario, it, it's sort of clips and clear, cartoony, mm. um, sort of jauntier than you expect for the subject matter. Arab of the Future is actually surprisingly similar. It's um I like that approach though. Yeah. It works. And this works particularly well for some of the um sort of My brain just stuttered there because I wanted to say exoflora and then I thought is it exofauna and actually it's kind of weirdly both because there's a the whole engineered technology bio goo thing going on for a bit. But it, it's sort of a Thorian creeper. <laughs> It's 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 weird gaudy colours and and fun stuff. The style works works delightfully for it. It's still ongoing. I think it's been going for a shade over a year, maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to very much have acts. So the first chunk of it is chap at the base having a shitty time and getting lured down into a crater, and then there's the stuff in the crater, and then there's some other stuff that's happening. But I'm absolutely not going to spoil. But there's a there's a page transition, effectively a day transition. Mm update transition where something happens that you're just kind of fuck that's there's some really nice bits of pacing in there Mm. um 
Also in a sci-fi vein, I finally picked up the second volume of uh, Warren Ellis and Jason Howard's Trees. Trees is one of the most interesting sci-fi comics to come out in quite some time. This, this premise, for those that aren't familiar with it, of what if aliens landed but didn't even recognize us as meaningfully intelligent. These things just descend, these giant trees, these sort of cylindrical spacecraft, um, root themselves at various locations around the world and do nothing, except when they do something. Kind of venting waste or doing things, just basically carrying about the business that destroy whole cities. And the first volume ends with a sort of giant EMP coming out of one of them. This picks up a little later. Um, the first volume is quite scattered. There's a few narratives, like the weird super spy that lives in Alistair Crowley's abandoned mansion because it's boring Ellis. It's boring. Uh, uh, yes. That's a quite a short story in there. But and it does about... pack a lot of Ellis tropes into a very short mm. space. But it's, it's interested in the socioeconomic fallout of an event like this. The mm. first volume is all over the globe. There's a sort of city in China built around the, that forms around the foot of one of the trees that's allowed to go as a sort of special economic zone experiment that then doesn't end well. Um, there's the guy becoming mayor of New York on a kind of tree-based platform that's got an agenda. This issue is, this volume is half about him and half about one of the other people who's the scientist from the Polar Research Base in the first volume. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is about the guy who's the mayor of New York and um, Dr. Joe Creasy, who is the escape scientist from um, Blind Tail, the research station. And effectively, this is in, interwoven with a couple of other little details. This is the mayor's rise to power off the back of the sort of the down supporting the downtown area that was wrecked by the tree and it was working out what his agenda is. Mm-hmm. Then Joe being sent to the Orkneys, which is the, the tree in the UK, and various people advancing ideas about what's going on. And she's looking for these flowers that sprouted mm-hmm. out of the Arctic tree just before it went kind of nuclear well not nuclear massive EMP and she's so she, she's concerned that, that will herald mm. more of this happening if it happens across the globe then the effect would be we're fucked yeah um, but it's not clear that's what's happening it's got this wonderful thread through it about popular hysteria effectively it's about the public understanding of science mm. so she's sent there by the government and it's all hush hush and she's furious about it and then encounters reactions up there that suggest that although it's kind of morally repellent they've sort of got a point Mm. But it shouldn't. It, it's one of those things where every version is every version sucks. You know, if if like life. It, so it, it has this really strong riff that, without decent understanding of what actual science and in progress mm. science means, and people will draw insane conclusions and do stupid things. And Ellis actually uses the uh, the um, paedophile hysteria thing mm-hmm, about the paediatrician mm-hmm. being 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 beaten up. Uh, the house was attacked. I think right. they weren't killed. Um, so it's that kind of example of, well, what if everyone suddenly went looking for any slightly funny-looking flowers mm-hmm. and, you know, hysteria. So it's got a really interesting... One of the things this issue, this volume explores is essentially public understanding of in-process science. Um, but uncertainty is a very big theme. And then the mayor's story sort of is this counterpoint about him... It looking like his policy is sort of all about the impact of the trees, but it actually being almost entirely about a kind of personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. And there's something else going on. Um, so it pulls back from the geopolitical reach to tell two more personal stories, and I suspect it'll pull out again for, for subsequent volumes. The main thing that struck me, actually, was just quite how much the producers of Arrival had been cribbing from it. So the design of the spacecraft and of the, the the visual design of the language and quite a lot of the tropes are very, very similar. Mm. Um, Do you think that's deliberate or just convergent? 
I, it, honestly, it could be either. So, um, I mean, Arrival is obviously based on a short story that predates trees, and I haven't read it, so I don't know how much of the design elements it stipulates. Same. Um, so there, there could be all sorts of things going on there, but it did amuse me. Um, Jason Howard's artwork is beautifully fitted to it. it it's, it's similar to... And I'm only drawing this comparison because it's both more or less, but it's similar to Shalby's work on Injection, but it's fidgetier. Uncle Warren sure is doing a lot of big weird sci-fi these days. I love that he's back. I'm happy he's back. Mm. Mm. He's doing a remarkable amount given that he's seems to be doing so much in other media at the moment as well. Well, um, I guess it's momentum. Like once you've got it queued up. Yeah, and there's a there's a like so it'll tail off because there is a stagger effect as well mm. as things mm. get published. Um, no, Trees is, Trees is still fantastic. I'd have, I'd have actually preferred it to be a little more like the first volume. I like the sweep of it. I like the fact that this wasn't... that this was about... He calls it the silent pressure they exert on the world, and I, I liked it being about that. This being about sort of slightly more immediate, more almost more cinematic stories is fine, but not the way around I preferred it. Quick aside, the thing that he's been running for Marvel recently, um, Karnak, has just been oh, is that extraordinarily good. Oh, that uh, Yes, they got a new artist on it and handled that in quite a nice way in, in the comic itself. Um, like, there was a distinct point at which it just cut across in one issue that made mm. sense. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's... it's um, it's Marvel, it's also about the Inhumans, which is never, like, that's like D-grade Marvel at best. Yeah. But it's really good. Cares, but but um, the, the premise for Karnak himself is... Very, very Ellisy. Yeah. It's the man who can see the flaw in all things. And in this in iteration of that means that he's just an absolute bastard. He can see <laughs> everything that's wrong with you, your philosophy. Mm-hmm. It means he's, he's the... He's that guy. He, yeah, he can... He can uh, punch a bullet out of the air or um, just break your finger by looking at you, that sort of thing. What a dickhead. Mm. And he's a complete arse about it, which is lovely. So I've been reading uh, Critical Chips, uh, which is a collection of criticism. You see, it's, it's sort of in the title there. Uh, that Zaino Bakhtar um, put together and was on Kickstarter a few Yay. months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Fairly short zany thing with everything sort of around four pages long, probably sort of five to eight hundred words, maybe a bit more, from um, quite a broad range of critics. And it seems to me that they've been sort of allowed to write whatever they want, and as a result, there's some quite interesting things come through. Like, there's a really nice piece, the very first piece in the book actually, is um, David Brothers, who used to write the fourth letter um, oh, blog yeah. um, more recently was working at Image um, he wrote a piece on dipping in and out of Bleach the long running manga series mm. at various different points in his life and sort of um, needing different things from it as, as it went and it maturing and doing different things and how he related to that and it was a really nice piece about that sort of long long running um, piece of work and then you've got how people engage with comics and academia which has the best um, picture of anything in the in the book which is just a pile of crackers and uh, the words representation in academia underneath it 
Um, it's just full of it's full of interesting people writing mm. about things that they care about. Some of them are um, boostery. Some of them are odd. Like Zainab's piece is primarily about portrayal of it. It, it sort of talks about the sort of secularization of Satan in comics, but really focuses on um, a particular piece of Judge Dredd, a good piece. Um, by Arthur Ransom, who I know she likes a lot, writes about his Batman run as well. Mm. Um, and just it just sort of different things all over the place. I don't know if you can still buy it, so I don't know if there's any point in me recommending it, but it has that same sort of feeling as Douglas Folk's reading comics. Lots of little vignette pieces of criticism that touch on different interesting things that you may not know about. Well, she managed to get a run together for... Um Oh, uh, Food Baby, after Short Box. So it's possible this will get another go. I hope so. It, it's, so there's, the, she had a digital version up for a while, and I know that it's got a lifespan, and that might mm. be over by this point. Um, the physical version is not getting reprinted. Right. So it'll be PDF on out, and I don't know if, um, if that's happening. Like, There's a very deliberate choice to make it a restricted, mm. like a zine-like right. thing with a limited run. So... Um, Enjoy this if but, you, you know, can. Uh, email us and, and I might lend it to you. Um, the other thing I've been reading is The Can Opener's Daughter by Rob Davis. I don't think I've come across that. Which is a follow-up to The Motherless Oven, which I believe was oh, my, yeah. my book of the year in 2014. Mm. Oh boy, that was really good. Yeah. This is a continuation of the story. So The, the Motherless Oven is set in a world where... It's sort of like the grimmest possible version of magical realism you could imagine. Um, children create their parents, and their parents are these huge, clanking monstrosities or um, freaky machines. Freaky machines, and sometimes people ride them. And they live in a world of household gods, which are basically just household appliances that yell at you or teach you or do all sorts of things. But Knickknacks and nonsense. Yeah, that but the whisper and, and talk and do strange things. Um, it's not quietly harrowing. And everyone knows oh, the God, day yes. that they're going to die or everyone has a set day that they're going to die. Um, and this, uh, this, this focuses on Vera Pike in this new one, who's one of the main characters in the first one. And sort of goes into her childhood, growing up into a different place, growing up in a different place that works slightly differently. Mm. Um, she's the daughter of the prime minister of this other part of the world that they live in, and um, she has a fairly grim childhood in this same sort of world, and sort of dealing with the pressures of of being uh, being an outsider in, in a private school system, where most schooling is about figuring out the optimum time to commit suicide. Um, you don't want to miss too much, but you also don't want to suffer. Mm. And they spend a lot of time just looking at when to commit suicide. Um, it's it good kind of, learning, good mm, learning. Sounds kind of useful, actually. Mm. Humans are all too given to hope in these matters. Yeah. And yeah, it's, um, it's not as much fun as the first book. Um, the first book is sort of more of a scrappy adventure and very heavy on puns this this has some of them um it's also much harder to read because it does very little world building beyond what it has to it does nothing to reintroduce the world mm -hmm. it assumes that you're familiar with a very oddly and precisely structured 
um, scenario. Is it worth rereading the previous first? Yeah, absolutely, it's worth rereading. I regret not having done so. Um, I thought it would be more standalone than it is. Mm. Um, Readers be warned. It is, yes. Caveat, reader. Mm. Lector. <laughs> I prefer reader. I can't forget whether you're laughing because I shout on your dog or whether you're laughing because that was a very me thing to do. Oh, it's both. It's like, I, I, I know the word. It's just... <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, do you want to redo that? No, no. It's just... You look like a monster now. In whatever, however I edit this, you look That's like a true. bad person. The one who does the Latin speaking is usually the bad one. Yes. It is a forbidden knowledge. Known only to public school boys. <laughs> so it's it's good and it does continue the story in useful ways, but it, it's sort of it's almost two halves. One half her childhood and the slightly different versions of the world. Um, and another which is the straight continuation of the first story, mm. which which is a little bit more similar. But it's just it's really grim. It's mm. really grim and it is enjoyable, but it's not as it's not as out and out fun as the first one. It doesn't have quite so much of the wordplay that the first one does. There are a couple of great sort of shining moments of ridiculous over engineered wordplay mm. that mm. made me think, yes, yes, it's still here. But Less so. Mm, definitely, definitely still worth reading, but it didn't it didn't and couldn't have the same impact mm. because You've already read it, the first one for yeah, the first time. A lot of it is that that sort of the first encounter with the scenario. I definitely found with the first one that it was world building by quite slow exposition, though. So it's, that the second one doesn't have a lot of kind of additional stuff, and it. it doesn't surprise me necessarily. No, no, and it's um, it is it is similar in that way, and it. it it fills in some bits in the first one in a mm. way that I feel is sort of unnecessary. Like, it explains why it was raining knives at a particular time, for example, which feels like an overreach. Like, it feels yeah. like if you're going to, if you're going to read back, or you're going to read them in time, so you're you going to get something, it. something, not that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but still, still well worth reading. Good. I, I like would like to. And shall. I can't believe I didn't read the first one. Now I, now I feel like I should. You'll enjoy it, I mm. think. It's 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 black projecty weird. It's not not identical in tone or content, but it's no. young people going feral weird, mm. which I like a lot as a category. Yeah, they live in a they live in a world where they create their own parents as sort of arbitrary objects to make them feel guilty about things. It's it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. I have so many questions. Yeah, I still don't understand all of it. Reading it doesn't really clear all of them up. Excellent. Mm. Genuinely. So today, we are, we are going to talk about something that we probably should have covered at this point, which is comic shops. Um, it's been more than four years. The place at which comics are purchased. Sometimes, if it's you not the, the Amazon source. or the Comixology. <laughs> Yeah. Or the Marvel subscription. So I think the idea was we were going to talk a little bit about what we, what makes an ideal comic shop for us. And then, given our tendencies, we'll probably just complain for a while. Mm. 
Mmm. Sound good? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we tried to build one once. We did try to build one once. We, back in the midst of time, um, ran a teeny comics empire out of Borders, Cambridge. Um, Which no longer exists and is now TK Maxx. Yeah, Yeah, we're okay with that. Mm. But after, I mean, after somehow wrangling freedom to run ordering and what have you from the corporate beer moth, it became rapidly obvious, and this is why I'm quite sympathetic to a lot of what's wrong with a lot of comic stores, it became rapidly obvious to, that there's just not a lot you could do. I mean, even with a giant corporate buying machine behind us and access to the superior discount rates, we still weren't getting, and we were moving a lot of stock, we still weren't getting particularly good rates through Diamond. Um, we could get far better rates through other publishers' borders, and we had far better US import deals. I think for a while we were moving... You know, the Yowie guys, I think we were moving more of their stuff than anyone else in the UK. Um, Just uh, In Cambridge, <laughs> you say? Yeah. But even then, Weird, isn't it? razor-thin margins and horrible commercial arrangements. Yes, and just... Um, so for anyone who doesn't know what the direct market is, you order comics from a company called Diamond who package together tons and tons of publishers and they send you... A box every Wednesday, and then you rush it out to the shelves quicker than the comic shop down the road, so that this you get the, the sales box. first. It's for a lot of trades as well. Yeah, they don't always have the drop on other suppliers for the trades. No, but so if you're already buying from them, you may as well. Yeah, for the weekly comics and for generally the first flush of the trade, so they'll they'll usually have them first. So Diamond for, uh, Image, for example, sell into the direct market first, so comic mm. shops get them, and then Amazon get the second flush from. Yeah. Um, the, the other um, the other distributors so you have you have this and you have to sort of guess which comics you're going to need and in what quantity about three months out based on a very loose description and with no idea of how much the last one sold so you're Ooh. kind of making an, the most educated guess you can on extremely poor terms with, with sale or return being non-existent or very, very poor terms, um, with a whole bunch of incentives designed to make you buy more. And no necessary guarantee that anything you order is going to turn up. None at all. None at all, not really. Um, So it's a fascinatingly broken system and it kind of dominates the traditional comic book shops. It's, I mean, it's the kind of, it's, it's, it's a frankly bizarre monopoly and the only reason it hasn't been broken up is that the segment's too small for anyone to give a fuck. I was going to say, how are they doing it this badly still? Who is not, why has no one disrupted this capitalism? Uh, Amazon has a bit, Comixology has a bit, which is now Amazon. Marvel tried to in the 90s, and um, they removed their books from this and went into their own distribution deal. Um, and it meant that the bulk orders that were getting people better margins... People weren't hitting that, and a load of comic shops closed, the ones that were just clinging on. Mm. Um, you have to kind of replace the whole thing at once to make it Honestly, work. Being, mm. being a comic book store that doesn't have anything else, or that is heavily dependent on monthlies rather than books, yeah. is basically the same as being a pub that doesn't do food. Your gross profit's pretty comparable, it's tossable. Mm. Um, it's incredibly easy to take away from you because it's a commodity product that you're ordering dependent on wholesale discounts. Which is why every comic shop seems to have 
kind of bloated out into I'm selling vinyl pop heads and a bunch mm-hmm. of pop culture crap and whatever else some it is, yeah. board stuff? games and model stuff and what? nerd things, things that people who buy the comics like. So mm. that's the other thing is get them through the door. Mm. So if you look at Forbidden Planet, which is our local comic store, we don't all necessarily use it. I go in quite a bit. Um, Mine is Nation Huntingdon. Oh, which got, is got better, yeah. Cool. It's nice. Um, they do Warhammer as well, and actually a pretty good range of indie stuff and stuff that I would actually like to buy. I mean, I don't buy a lot of comics there, but every time I look, I think, yeah, shit, that's a good selection. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, also, also the singles and stuff, a lot of image. I didn't know about that. No, they're good. They're good people. Um, let's come back to that. Because yeah. I, I want to talk about the, the good indies and the people that are doing it right. They yeah. had some cake and muffins for some reason once, but we didn't <laughs> take any. That's cool. But you, you get in, in the sort of the commodity ones, mm. um, or places like Forbidden Planet or Traveling Man, which are which are you know when they're good they're good. There's this tremendous need, therefore, because of the the fine margins and the fuckery of the direct market, to basically rush out to meet the mainstreaming of nerd culture. Hence all the Minecraft Pixel the, Sword, yeah, have a Harry Potter one. Here's some Adventure Time. Oh God, here is even more Adventure yeah. Time. Do you want a bust of Picard? Probably. Give us several hundred pounds. And I'm, I'm actually okay with it, so long I as they still... I kind of do want a bust of Picard, yeah. but not for several hundred pounds. Yeah. I want a cheap one. So long as they still do the cool stuff, I'm, I'm down with this. Um, and it could even help bring more people... That, so there's this, this sort of vague, geeky shiver that, oh yeah, the, like the Marvel Universe or whatever, mm. the, the popularising of interest in... And this stuff is going to bring more people into comics, and that'll spice it all up a bit. And it kind of hasn't happened. They just watch the TV or the um, movie and don't bother with the comic. Well, also, where do you start? The, again, the, the the direct market does not make that friendly. But the Fuck, yeah. other thing that doesn't make it friendly is, let's say you're pulled in by seeing the shiny Adventure Time things that mm. you want to buy, or the interesting toys, or you see something cool in your local corporate or surprisingly good non-corporate comic store. There's a fairly substantive risk. Now, this doesn't seem to happen in the Cambridge branch, but there's mm-hmm. a fairly substantive risk that you will wander in and then encounter a bunch of gatekeeping assholes who will tell mm. you you've got no right to be there because you can't something, something, something Jack Kirby. Tell me all of the Batmans. Yeah. Um, or you'll encounter a bunch of perfectly nice people who are cluttering up the entranceway playing Magic the Gathering and it's just kind of off-putting although they're actually lovely. <laughs> the fact that they're lovely doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid that they're going to do the thing where they police your mm. ability to be there. So there's there's this few things stacked up against both drawing in new readers and keeping me coming back, frankly. Like the fuckery of the direct market, gatekeeping dick ends, mm. poor selection. But sometimes you really luck out, so you found... So it was it Niche? Niche and Huntingdon, yeah. They're um, down by the three tons, past the church. If you know what that is. No, but, no? but it fine. paints a picture in my head. Yes. And they do a bit of the gaming stuff, you said? Yeah, so the main reason we started going there is because my partner's really into Warhammer and it's the only place that isn't the Warhammer shop mm. in Cambridge that sells paints and some models. They've got mm. sort of limited but decent selection. Cool. They tend to carry the magazine. But it's it's mainly a comic shop. Like, there's a little Warhammer bit out the back. I've never actually been upstairs. I don't know what there is upstairs. Probably stuff. Um, but in front they've got sort of several racks of the current singles, the current kind of trades of popular stuff, and then kind of a big table of the more sort of hardbacky graphic novel type. Mm. You know what I mean? A sort of yeah. comic is a complete book type thing as opposed to part of an ongoing thing. In a sanctum in Cambridge is like that for games. They've got oh, some, yes. some of the Warhammer incredible. stuff. Amazing selection. Um, a bunch of weird indie stuff as well. There's one, um, I can't mm. remember what it's called, but Dave's got the sort of starter kit for... 
just sort of horrible nuclear wasteland that was designed by a guy who lives or used to live around here. But then he moved to Exeter with his girlfriend, which the man in the shop told us for some reason. They're really nice in that. But it's right next to the dumpling place it as is. well. You can go and get games in the dumpling. Many dumplings. We've well, this, this, this has been the niche but, retail parks in Cambridge section of the show. And so my, my one of those was Dave's in Brighton. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like to toot the horn for Gosh, and I will talk about Gosh, but I actually massively prefer Dave's in Brighton, mm. which was better for serendipitous discovery and a little, a lot friendlier. I would like the big table in Gosh to be the small table in Nation Huntingdon, because mm. they're sort of... Gosh is better for me in terms of discoverability and that they're more likely to have stuff that is adjacent to stuff that I like but I haven't heard of yet, mm. whereas Niche tends to be more of a case of I go in and think, yes, those are all things I already know that I do like or would like, I just mm. have read or haven't got around to yet. So that is what they did at Dave's and Brighton. So, mm. um, Dave's and Brighton was like a weird recreation of the branch of Forbidden Planet in Newcastle mm. in the 90s. <laughs> kind of it, it seemed sort of dingy and the floor's a bit sticky but they've got this fan, really lovely staff fantastic selection um, they've done that thing that a lot of places do I don't know if you notice this of segregating the superhero stuff yes so which Gosh does as well you I like go that. upstairs or downstairs or into a different room for, yes. the, for the singles and the I don't want to say landfill because that's too patronising the singles and the boring trades <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of it is sort of it doesn't even. It doesn't seem quite fair to call Image an indie anymore. They're that big, but they're not an indie. Not really. Like, what does he? What does, what does it mean? mean? Yeah. Um, big not, enough, but still making things yeah. that I like. Not Marvel or DC, I guess. Yeah. No. Um, but so they 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 do that thing, but it's bright. It's still bright and airy and reasonably pleasant in the superhero segregation area it's not actually just a dank basement no um, and the the things they highlight on the various tables turn out well I think th- th- that's that's very important for me I think in a in a comic store the reason I would go in rather than buying off that nice Mr. Bezos with the drones is serendipitous discovery and the blimps and the blimps yeah so I've I've been going to actual physical stores less in the last year and it has really damaged my ability to to find things it's sort of amplified the amount of time I've had to spend reading around because I can't just go this looks nice and I'll mm. buy it mm. um, it does make things harder not going into specifically well curated shops mm. going back very briefly to the sort of proliferation of adjacent nerd culture stuff something I find difficult about that in places like Forbidden Planet is that the less square footage actually given over to comics the less likely the comics are to be the ones that interest me they're yes. more likely to be the more mainstream hookier ones that I'm not necessarily going to be into this is I mean this is a systemic problem with book selling which is um, range backlist yeah. so it's one of, the, one of the things that some borders actually I won't get into this in detail but if you try and go um, toe to toe with Amazon or the deep discounters particularly the supermarkets mm. you get the deep discount on front list mm-hmm. um, which sorry um, semi-obvious but front list relatively new relatively popular backlist historical catalog the long tail yeah and going toe to toe with someone that can afford volume on front list is a race to the bottom in pricing. It's it's a mugs game, but it's one that you can't get out of if you're going to be a bookshop. Mm-hmm. So you've just got to do it to get people through the door. And if you think you can make your money like that, you're probably wrong, or you're very good at something. Sell that dog paw. Yeah. More dog paw. But um, 
the exciting bit and the actual thing that can differentiate you is your backlist, but it's phenomenally expensive to hold inventory and you don't get the deep discount on the backlist. Mm -hmm. um, I say deep, I mean, you can, you can get up to 40% discount on backlist for paperback books, but that's actually not a lot in the scheme of things because you're talking small ticket sales and mm. high street rents and your, your margin just oh goes. Oh God, yeah. So your per unit gross profit can look all right, but actually once you get into actual net, you're, you're fucked. Um, so the less space you have, the more you end up having to give it to front list or predictable, we know it'll sell that list. Yeah. And yeah, you just, you don't have the space for that indie table. You don't necessarily have the spare budget. This might be interesting. Someone yeah. might like this. It's not going to make you money in the way that this is definitely going to sell if a number of copies will. Local creator comes in and says, will you take five of these? And maybe you, maybe you can't. Mm. It's great to be able to do that. Mm. Often it's bilge, but it's great to be able to give bilge the space it deserves. What would your ideal comic shops look like? I think we, we sort of all notionally agreed that the proliferation of you like that, so you'll like this generic nerd shit is not ideal. I'll stand up for it. I'm game for a little. I'm game for some, but it's just the the sort of thoughtless proliferation. I think a lot of that is down to the Funko products. They are. Yeah. Fucking terrible, joyless, poorly designed, generic nonsense that you can just slap a different haircut on and, and mm. pump out as though they are something from Geek Franchise X. Like, it's going to take you half a day to whip up the 3D model to make one for Stranger Things or the next, yeah. next big yeah. thing. They are cynical and horrifying, and they are taking up the vast majority of shelf space at the moment. And it's also, it's the... There is so much of this and the percentage of it which seems like cheap tech to just try and pull money out of people shamelessly is too high for me to really deal with. Yeah. Uh, but I, also, but even, even the sort of quite sort of finely crafted high-end type stuff, your bust of Picard, your wonderful mm. Harry Potter wand and the like magical case that it comes in, it's just that at a much higher price point. Yeah, yeah. So, I've, I mean, I've got a couple and of thoughts on this. Move it. Um, one is it's that yeah, record you, store guy's problem with all of those weird fucking half Robert Downey Juniors he's got going on. But if you've got a bunch of that stuff, so I resent that in some places. One thing that I really like is that Heifers in Cambridge has started selling the Harry Potter ones alongside the comics and games, and they sell tons of them, and it really helps them because they are right opposite the colleges and they're right opposite where the tourists are. Yeah, and they get a lot of rich teenagers going. Oh, it's like Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. I went there, yeah. I got a wand yes. from Harry Potter land, apart from the one that doesn't cost like $50 to get into. So that's really useful. But yes, a lot of it is kind of generic and probably better off bought online. Yeah. Hey, so um, Dave's in Brighton, to harp on, had a really nice solution about, to this, which is, I mean, partly because they couldn't get larger premises, but they had the comic store and then two doors down, I think there was like a clothing store and a hippie tat store in between. Mm. They had their game store and the game store had the pop tat in it mm. yeah so they, they just put the, the Copenhagen people have that they have a separate store that's just comics one that's mm. just for board games and gaming mm. one that's just for LARP gear and one that's for general pop culture shit and I think that's a good model if you can afford to have four stores in the mm. middle of Copenhagen I mean well, who can well sticks and sushi it's called Ferris Cigar I quite like well, the oh nice. that's nice yeah did I tell you about the LARP gear and game store in um, Vienna maybe oh Vienna oh man I'll tell you about. I'm never the LARP. not going to do that. <laughs> no. I'll tell you about the LARP year and game store in Vienna sometime. Thank you. 
I like the um, approach Gosh take as well, which is that they do a really minimal amount of of this stuff, and it's things like coloring books and um, design your own robot books, and then just a load of little plastic Tintins and Moomins and things that just say, "Welcome, middle class parents, mm. come on in." Okay, I'm just gonna right. My ideal comic store, pretty much, would be Dave's on Gosh's premises with Gosh's indie shelf. And maybe a bar. So here's the thing. Sell coffee. <laughs> Sell coffee. Because the margin on even very good quality coffee is extraordinarily high. You can afford to sell coffee for the same amount that the big uh, shops sell it. Gross. You've still got to pay people if you're a decent person that eats internet and you risk soiling stock. But yeah. it's still basically printing yes, money. Yes, but even then the margin is considerably still higher. printing money. And people love a fucking bookshop coffee shop. It's their favourite fucking yes. thing. So you will you will always have stock turnover, and I, I think the stock turnover from theft is always going to be much higher than yes. it is from coffee of coffee. the middle classes. Yes. Um, but it just it just feels like a small thing that you can do that is always going to be useful to bolster profits, um, as long as you can get a reputation for doing it well. So have coffee or have booze, as Hart says. He says that because he's an alcoholic. Little pies. I do, but. Pies would be good. You're agreeing with him about your alcoholism. He was. Yeah. Okay. Um, in a sanctum, have more space than they need. Mm-hmm. Well, not more space than they need. They have more space than they fill with shelves, and in the middle they put gaming tables, and they become a semi-social space. Quite a lot of the time, whenever they're full, it's because they're full of people playing something yeah. rather than because they're full of people browsing for games. And they, so they've become a they become a destination space, which you have to do in this kind of niche, unless you mm-hmm. unless you're in central London, and even then a bit. Um, yes, because where in the sanctum is, you wouldn't necessarily go unless you knew it was there because it's a weird cul-de-sac down past the railway tracks. And I'd be far more likely to use that space if they... I could lie and say serve coffee. I'd like to be able to get a glass of wine. Do you know what else has good margins? Second hand. Oh. It Lies does. second hand, but it requires... It's got quite high hassle overheads. It does, yes. It's it given the comparative expense of comics compared to other books and ebooks and stuff that people are used to buying, I imagine that would be an attractive market for consumers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, especially given that people only tend to read things once. Yes. Um, I've been to a few places that do it well. Powell's in Portland does it very nicely. Ooh, Stops the yes. second hand alongside, sticker on the spine so you can see that it's second hand and check the price against the, mm-hmm. um, the other one. As long as you've got content... I'd love to uh, see the numbers on Sarah, that. A, a, sorry, a um, CMS that actually has all of these things in, then you can manage that. Mm. And that's just a question of buying in the database from people in the same way that any other retailer is going to do. Well, yeah, that's just that's what... Um, it's always buying a database with you lot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you need a basic ERP system backed onto Nielsen. Oh, Nielsen, yeah, books can. You need infrastructure. Both physical and internet. I know you can... So I find it quite easy to imagine a mad fantasy version of a good comic store that would be more of a social space that would never work commercially, which is the thing that has not just the sort of cursory bar that you get away with, but actually, you know, were a nice social space. At that point, though, you're not actually running a comic store, you're running a bar that happens to have comics. Um, well, I mean, I don't know how to deal with my fundamental problem with my ideal comic store being a place that has everything I want and nobody in it. Mm. It's not really a viable business model. 
No, well, that's, it's, that's just Amazon, really. It's, yeah. it's browsing Amazon somewhere with a nice sofa. Yeah, which is not my house. So I would, I would like good stock, second-hand stock, recommendations from people. Mm. Yeah, I, I genuinely value staff recommendations. And it's one of those great things where actually, I mean, here at least, plenty of people in the comics industry end up working in the bookshops mm. as well for a bit while they're... Mm. Sometimes and they give good recs they know they know the people they know the stuff they do the good recs I mean yeah Gosh has a fairly substantive history of that a few of the other stores do Um, is it page uh, 45 45. in Nottingham I think have a really good reputation for that and they've gone they sort of go out of their way to provide reviews online as well ooh that's nice and and page 45 do really nice um, review and content stuff Mm. they found a really nice way of getting themselves out and adding some extra value ooh I think it's working non-stop mm. is how they do it yeah well that's the thing this is a fucking miserable life there is that yes I mean having books and reading them is nice trying to sell them to people is not yeah yeah fundamentally I mean we both did it for four years it's horrifying yeah and we didn't even get to keep any of the money no Yes, I would like to pay other people well to do it for me Mm. on such margins that it was feasible, but that's not necessarily the case. And the industry is not going to help you in any way to do that. No, it's not. We've basically just run hard into the core problem of modern capitalism, right? Which is that we don't pay enough for our stuff. Sorry, it's all fucked. And we want everything for free or close to. Which is why people bulk up paying 20 quid for a comic. Yeah. Because they're only thinking about the value of the paper that got printed and not the fucking value of the art and thinking and whatever that went into making it. People's fucking time and skill. It's where you go to. Up. Even us to make stuff. I don't know about you, I'm guilty of this. But oh you go to Thought Bubble and you pick up something small. And you know, Ten quid. And you know, no, actually, it is this person's time. And, yeah, and um, their livelihood, hopefully, yeah. at this point. It, it, yeah. it's, it's really hard. It's really hard because it's a super hostile environment. High street rents are appalling. I, I don't know how you. This is the really difficult thing for me, which is in order to be able to afford to run something like a, like a comic store. You probably, unless you're very lucky, you probably can't afford to be on the high street, which means you can't buy into the footfall, which means you've got to find a way to be a destination out of town, which means you're already semi-fucked. Give up and franchise at Greg's. Yeah. Everyone wants Greg's. Or could you sell comics and steak bakes? You could do. They're doing a chicken katsu bake now as well, under the sort of healthy bakes range. I have questions. The sourdough bakes. Oh. What? I don't think I've ever actually been to Greg's. Their uh, their new healthy ones are sourdough based. I grew up in the in the north. I just I, I can't face going to a Greg's down here. It doesn't seem right. No. I've been I've been to Greg's. I'll, I'll go. You know, back in the old country. Mm. I thought I know a bit too much about the comic store thing. Do we have anything other than it's really fucking hard? I think it would be I think it would be very hard to get into now. The places that we've talked about are doing it well. Um, Dave's page forty five. Gosh. Um, also, um, OK Comics mm. in Leeds. Orbital. Um, Niche. They're all established. They're all well mm. established. They're mm. not, they're none of them new. Mm. Um, you, and they've had a chance to get ahead of the game. That said, they are sort of ossified as well. Yeah. It's, and it's, you can have this problem as well. We, we touched on this briefly with gatekeeping and welcomeness. There was a, I don't know if you remember, there was a big thing on Twitter last year about women talking about bad experiences at comic stores. Yeah. Mm. Um, pretty yeah. fucking horrendous. And there's um, one, of the, one of the things in Critical Chips is actually about that. Mm. I think it's Kim O'Connor talking about how off-putting the, uh, the, the sort of general comic shop experience is. So there's this enterprise product management 
thing of you can fire your customers. Enterprise can do that when its average transaction value is high and it's reasonably easy to find a new pipeline. If you have a deeply problematic customer, say someone that's not paying you much money but is costing you disproportionate support or someone that's dragging you down a line of feature development. That you know, and I'm talking about enterprise software here primarily, but it works for a few other things. There's this big thing, it was quite trendy a few years ago. You can fire your customers. Low margin businesses can't necessarily fire their customers. So especially if you've got a sort of 80-20 scenario where a tiny proportion of your customers are generating most of your revenue, it's like being a pub and having that obnoxious racist regular who props up the bar. Can you actually afford to ban it? You need the cash of their booze addiction. Yeah, that. Yeah. And no, I've, I've worked in low margin, much smaller low margin retail like video game shop. And no, you can't. You need those people. They've got more money than sense. And so you have to you, grin and bear it. How do you offset? And it shouldn't be your job to manage their fucking awful behavior. It's. The, the, and yet you could be deterring. Well, there's the actual moral and societal argument, and then there's the revenue argument of if you got enough new people through the door, you wouldn't be dependent on these awful people, and maybe you'd be better off. How many newer, smaller, less worse customers would you need to make up that deficit, and how could you get them, and is that actually feasible? How do you, how do you keep them as well? Mm. I genuinely hope someone has that on a spreadsheet somewhere, but... We don't, I, I don't have, have an answer to this one. Um, Cherish your comic shops that exist right now, particularly the independent ones. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Yeah, it's all come to dust and ash. Um, but no, it's genuinely hard and kudos to anyone who does manage it, particularly um, shops that aren't sort of heavily focused on other stuff and do focus on the comics. It's why, like, so the, the Cambridge branch has been planned, which, yes, is a, is a corporate... I think does a really good job. I've never felt it was sniff your gatekeeping. And yes, they've given a lot of floor space over to random tat. But the comic selection is great. It's well curated. The staff are approachable and enthusiastic. Um, they've done a really good job of this slightly fucky situation. Um, and we, we don't have, have an indie here. Is it as good as the indies that I, I like? No. But, you know, credit where due. We have a couple of mainstream bookshops with very good comic sections. Mm-hmm. Mm. But that, again, is entirely dependent on having knowledgeable staff to do yeah. that. Um, and working in retail and giving a shit are not always compatible at the same time. And no. you, yeah, you, well, you saw how fast. So the branch of Borders we worked in had no interest in maintaining it once we became massively disenfranchised. <laughs> no. Um, no, and it was turning over good money as well, but that, it's, a, it's specialist. Yeah. This stuff is so hard. Like, massive kudos to the people that can face doing it. Because that ain't us. Well, this is this has been bleaker than, than maybe it should have been. But yeah, I feel like this should have been a blog post where I just wank on about commercial stuff. No, nah, you'd only upset someone. So, uh, if you had um, hopes and dreams of setting up a comic book shop, uh, abandon them now. All is lost. Um, yeah, all is lost. You should have got in in the mid-90s when the going was good. Uh, ish. Ish. Fewer people reading, but... I don't know. Less worse capitalism, maybe, yeah, sort just, of? Just, look, just buy some copies of Saga, get some Steven Universe t-shirts, you'll be golden, it'll be fine, don't listen to us. 
And you can always stab yourself with a pixelated Minecraft sword if you need to. Yeah, just fall on that. get out claws, yeah. Fall on that blunt foam sword. Fall on the bust of Picard. You've really kind of hung up on this. He's just so noble looking. It's inspiring. Mm, I'm inspired by Picard. And on that bombshell, let's away. Good night. Good night. Good night.